we have to stop thinking about the horizontal piece of the food system and have vertical conversations. Agriculture is uniquely positioned to be a part of the solution because we have the ability to draw down carbon, store it in our soils, and in doing so, by building up that soil organic matter, we improve the productivity of our soils, we improve the water holding capacity of those soils, we definitely improve the nutrient cycling of those soils to prevent the movement of nitrogen and nitrates below the root zones. And over time, there are other benefits, but that's where I'm so excited about soil health, dry down carbon, and that also helps us improve biodiversity and a whole multitude of other things. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Climate smart agriculture. Do these three phrases go together? Climate smart agriculture. Well, I have someone with me today that can help me answer that question because she finds herself in the middle of it. And I'm, I'm really happy to welcome the Secretary of Agriculture for California, the CDFA, California Department of Food and Agriculture, and Karen Ross. And Karen, you're one of those departments that did keep food in the title. There's some around the country okay. that only go by agriculture, but I, I, I commend you for that. Uh, we're going to ask about the other words you've included in your job description now, too, such as climate smart and, and right. agriculture, let alone food. So, so, Karen, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be here. You know, Karen, I was getting ready to, to visit with you, and I, I kind of refresh myself on your background because we okay. share something in common. We both came to California from further east, in your case, Nebraska, in my case, Illinois. And, and I want to point that out because there's a lot of people that look at what we do in California and say, well, those folks just don't know what it's like where we're from. But, but you're from an area that had grain and, and, uh, and livestock, and, and so am I. And now we're in a state that has everything from oranges and almonds and other things that they don't grow in Nebraska. Or right. Illinois. That's right. But it's, a, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it, to make that journey from back in the middle of the country and out here in, in California. Yeah. It absolutely is. But the one thing we share, regardless of what we grow, and I found this as I've traveled the world, is that the values of farmers being on the land, oftentimes working as multi-generation families, the ethic of hard work and adaptation and innovation are pretty common across farming, regardless of where it happens. You know, it, it, that's true. That's true. One thing I found different in the Midwest and the South is that you had a better chance of being invited to dinner. Uh, back there, because when you <laughs> well, where I come from, Roger, in the western part of Nebraska, where there's only 800 people in the county, the excitement of oh my God, there's a dust cloud, somebody might stop. Let's get some iced tea and some cookies out. I was like, hey, right. come to right. me. <laughs> I love that. And but and on the other hand, in that part of Nebraska too, I knew some ranchers that 
that uh-huh. they had to have their kids go to school 60 miles away. And so they have a place in town in addition to a place out on the ranch because uh, people were pretty far apart in that part of the world. Yeah. Well, we bus everybody in to one location in Banner County. It's a consolidated kindergarten through 12th grade school. So the buses are allowed to run no longer than 45 minutes. So we have those bus routes. And my sister-in-law just retired last year after driving that school bus for 46 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, that's one of those things, too, that I find around the country. Some of the smaller farms that people are getting started, they're looking at something like driving a bus, too, because they have that's to right. put several different things together to be able that's to make right. a living because they can't get in at the scale. Otherwise, of yeah. Well, you got out here to California. You you were in business, running an association, and you've uh, and and uh, all your other kind of experiences. You also went back to Washington D.C. and were chief of staff at the Department of Agriculture for yeah. a while. And then we get to have you back in California again. You get back in California, Karen. Just one is getting really, really interesting on climate and trying to bring farmers mm-hmm. to the table right. on, on climate. And and that's where I kind of want to start with the question is, I've wondered whether farmers are all willing to get to the table. I mean, what do you, what do you run into when you talk about climate? Yeah. There's, there's the feeling that that in agriculture, they tend to be uh, maybe more conservative. And you hear about people doubting whether climate is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you encountered skepticism? And if you have, how have you dealt with it? Yeah, sure. I mean, we started talking about climate when I was president of California Wine Grape Growers, because as, as a crop that's so uniquely suited to very specific climates and microclimates, Um, the potential impact. And I remember this would have been more than 20 years ago, Napa Valley Vintners did the first study on a California crop of the impact to Napa Cabernet. I mean, where would this world be without Napa Cabernet? But when I came back from USDA, it was at a time where agriculture had not fully engaged in in the scoping plan and the discussions around climate because the, the fear of it turning into regulations on top of all the regulatory burden that farmers had, that was, you know, that's where they were coming from. And I fully understood it. But I also knew what the impacts to ag could be, especially our specialty crops, highly sensitive to changes in weather, the loss of chill days, the extended life of invasive pests, whatever it might be. So we convened a specialty crop climate consortium just to initiate conversations with farmers of, do you think about climate change? How are you thinking about it? What would help you with adaptation? Because at that time, we were only about adaptation. We weren't thinking about this exciting opportunity before agriculture now to be part of the solution, the mitigation, the ability that we have to draw down carbon and store it in our soils creates a very different kind of dialogue And it also comes after a decade of unbelievable insurance payments and crop insurance indemnities because of the multiple disastrous events that we've had, like what happened in Iowa last year Mm -hmm. or with, you know, the eastern seaboard being flooded, you know, 100 year floods that have happened three years in a row. Those kinds of events cause, I think, a different perspective of wanting to engage in this conversation. 
I think they would. And I'm curious, as you've kind of been on this journey now and you're into it, and we're going to talk about some of the programs that you have have going on, but what is your sense of how accepted uh, climate change is now uh, uh, in agriculture? Do you want to know something? I'm one of those very pragmatic people. I want to have the conversation and not let vocabulary necessarily prevent us from having the conversation. So I, I'm not asking people to, do you believe in climate change? I want to know what kind of changes are they dealing with? And if this, if there's change happening on the landscape, I want to know more about how they're thinking about it, how they're trying to adapt what tools, what technical assistance, what kinds of incentive programs will help them better adapt to and mitigate the changes that they're being faced with. Um, And so I I think it's important. We're so polarized already. I don't want to talk about, do you accept climate change? And it's either yes or no. And then I walk away from the conversation or what causes climate change? I'm more interested in what kind of problems are you facing? Where do you see this happening on a changing landscape? And what tools, you know, where are the answers for you? That's where I try to focus my energy. Well, that, t- that takes some patience uh, and, and diplomacy. I guess that's, uh, well, you're, you're professional. You're in the government. <laughs> you, know, you, you know what that's like. And uh, you've been even in the Secretary of Agriculture's office running programs and now back in California yeah. running programs. And, and, and just being pragmatic like that, I think it, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I would yeah. have a hard time. Because I'm such a believer that, no, the climate is changing and what humans do has contributed to it. Maybe it's not yeah. the only thing. And that yeah. the next step, though, of the people that are have gone that far is that, but what can they do? And I, I like your point. What can individuals do and what should they do to face, you know, how things are changing? Mm-hmm. Um, but. But again, that gets into what really makes a difference. And the other kind of interesting thing, Karen, back when we I talked about our origin, including yours in in Nebraska, some of the maps looks like Nebraska might be a little better off than it was, you know, in the, uh, 20, 30 years ago or 20, 30 years from now that the word the climate is kind of shifting is there's some some areas that are have less issues, supposedly, from a, a weather standpoint. <laughs> Um, in California, Northern California looks like it's a little better off than Southern California, mm-hmm. but droughts and, and, uh, all the other kind of issues though, um, those are going to be issues. And, and certainly when you talk about with the grape industry, uh, Tara, is that how you pronounce it? I always have a hard time with that. Tawa. Tawa. Okay. It's so yeah. French, but, but the taste of place matters. And you also made mention a few minutes ago about like chill time. And we have crops that have to like almonds, for example, they have to go to sleep for a little while and it's got to get cold enough that they can go to sleep. And then you have to have the flowers come out on the trees and the bees have to go in and pollinate and they have to have good enough weather to be able to pollinate or we're not going to grow the almonds. So it's complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated. Everything is interconnected. Um, But one of the things I want to make sure I acknowledge up front is that 
We didn't have to pioneer this. At USDA, there's decades of research that stands behind climate smart agriculture. Um, when Secretary Vilsack was the secretary, he introduced the building blocks for climate smart agriculture. Um, he started the US Climate Smart Ag Alliance and a global work very closely with FAO on an international um, global climate smart ag alliance. And just looking at the at the Natural Resource Conservation Service and their, their standard practices that are part of their equip program, their conservation stewardship program, those are, those are all elements that we've been able to build on. And what we did was make sure that Comet Planner and Comet Farm reflect the quantification methodology for our specialty crops because those tools were built for the primary program crops. And so that's where we made some of our early investments so we can make an, a friendly, a user-friendly tool for farmers to be able to calculate what are the greenhouse gas emission reductions from this practice or whatever that might be. And so, you know, we didn't have to start from zero. We had a common vernacular. We had decades of research behind these practices. We're just trying to make them work for our specialty crops out here in California. You, you know, I think people have a vague idea of what the job description is of a department of agriculture, department mm -hmm. of food and agriculture. But then what you're describing is recognizing beyond some of the regulations you get into and standards and safety issues mm -hmm. and, and even supporting kind of promotion of the commodities yeah. that are grown in your state that, um, that there was a time to say, we got to wade in and we have to, have a position and a role to play yes. uh, about climate and, and helping yes. farmers adapt. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty passionate about that because at its core, you know, the statute says the department will promote and protect agriculture and to not be actively engaged. And I would say helping to lead on solutions to climate from a farmer rancher centered perspective I'm not going to be able to protect agriculture. And so being able to engage fully with the science, with the practical programs, and then our magic sauce has been incentive dollars to cost share farmers that are willing to be leaders on this, demonstration projects, that peer-to-peer -peer learning that's, you know, it's part of UC Cooperative Extension Model forever and ever, and technical assistance. So we invest in that to make sure that the science and the practical outcomes are broadly available to every farmer in the state. And that includes our small, historically underserved farmers, where we've got community educators within the UC Cooperative Extension out there constantly explaining what climate smart agriculture is and helping those farmers apply for the incentive programs that we have. It's really interesting, Karen, and it's quite a journey. And speaking of journeys, I wonder if you take a journey with me. Let's kind of like wander down the virtual hall. We're having our <laughs> podcast conversation and we'll drop into a clubhouse. And I think there will okay. be a few people in there that might have some questions for us. We'll extend the conversation then with sure. uh, folks in the, the clubhouse and answering okay. questions about how they're seeing climate smart agriculture and you can explain the role a little bit more. So shall we great. wander down the hall? Let's do it. Let's take a walk together. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, welcome. This is Roger Wasson, and we're in Farm to Table Talk. And I have a special guest today. It's Karen Ross. And Karen is the Secretary of Food and Agriculture Department. Today, what we're going to talk about is climate smart agriculture. And Secretary Ross, we're going to want to know, uh, do these three words really fit together? Um, Can we climate and smart agriculture? And uh, some of the people in the room that are already here today, I know I've been into some other rooms with them. I've been talking a lot about whether agriculture is sustainable or regenerative. And, and I think we need to get into those points as well. And I'm going to open up the mics to start off with uh, introducing Karen Ross. I've known Karen for a while, have a lot of respect for her. She does, provides a lot of leadership for agriculture. Uh, she, when you, you hear us, you think, oh, well, here goes those Californians again. Uh, but actually, Karen is from, uh, has a farm back in Nebraska, knows all about the Midwest and raising cattle and row crops. So, so not just the California perspective. And she's taking a tour of duty as chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Agriculture back in Washington under the secretary and running the shop back there. And so she was involved with agriculture issues all over the country. And now she's back as the secretary of agriculture in California, where she's finding herself in in the midst and in leading efforts as regards to climate smart agriculture. So, So, Karen, welcome to this clubhouse room and also to the podcast on farm to table talk podcast and we'll have the full podcast up this weekend uh, in addition to this visit in the clubhouse room but yeah this is great it's a whole new experience for me clubhouse so i'm going to learn as we go through this okay roger <laughs> oh yeah yeah so karen um i think what I'd, I'd, I'd like to do first is ask you to respond to why do you find yourself enthusiastic about climate smart agriculture these days? Well, uh, climate smart agriculture for me is a couple of things. One is um, the ability for agriculture to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And when I'm speaking about agriculture, I'm talking specifically on the farm as farmers and ranches, the practices that they can implement to reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions as part of this really long and complicated um, food supply chain. And so what we're doing on the farm is the beginning of that process. Although you have to go, you know, if we start doing life cycle analysis, it's all the inputs and everything that goes forward. But there's much we can do, how we use energy, how we um, foster the health of our soils, how we use water and fertilizers, um, the, the number of cattle and how we rotate them um, for good management practices. But it's also agriculture is uniquely positioned to be a part of the solution because we have the ability to draw down carbon, store it in our soils, and in doing so, by building up that soil organic matter, we improve the productivity of our soils, we improve the water holding capacity of those soils. We definitely improve the nutrient cycling of those soils to prevent the movement of nitrogen and nitrates below the root zones. Um, And over time, there are other benefits, but that's where I'm so excited about 
on soil health, draw down carbon, and that also helps us improve biodiversity and a whole multitude of other things. Well, with that excitement, how does it translate into actions by the California Department of Food and Agriculture? And I would assume that other states are doing something similar as well, let alone the USDA. But but you can see the potential to make a difference. What are you doing to try to bring that along? So I'm very lucky to be in California because we're the first state that came out with very aggressive goals. Um, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, We were the first state, well, we're not the first state, but we are a state that formalized a cap and trade approach, more of a market-based approach, where we set caps, the availability of offset credits that could be purchased. And there was an intentional decision to reinvest those dollars in the transformation to a low carbon economy And so when we extended the state's authorization for the cap and trade program um, during Jerry Brown's years, agriculture was on the fence because they weren't engaged in the first round and they were able to um, negotiate the ability for dollars to come into climate smart agriculture programs. So over the last eight or nine years, We have established programs like methane reduction for our dairy and livestock sector, over $317 million in incentive grants for methane reduction. We've invested in on-farm water use efficiency, our SWEET program, over $87 million that's been invested in that program. Healthy Soils program, almost $50 million that have been made available in incentive grants for that program. We funded technical assistance to support farmers in knowing about these practices, doing demonstration projects. But then those are the programs that I implement. At the Air Resources Board, we've invested over $320 million for engine replacement emissions. We've invested in the Sustainable Agland Conservation Program at the Strategic Growth Council to conserve ag land because rule number one is keeping it in ag land does more to avoid greenhouse gas emissions than anything else we can do. We funded over $170 million in conservation easements. We've invested at the Energy Commission in food production, um, energy efficient for processors, $117 million. And we have a small energy commission program for on-farm renewable energy. The totality of that is slightly more than $1 billion that's been invested specifically in ag in its transition to a low-carbon part of the economy. That's pretty impressive, I think. I think it's really impressive, too. And then some people listening here might have some questions for you, how they can do it in their own states or provinces, because I know we have some Canadian friends on as well this morning. I've talked to a number of Canadians about this. So... I wonder, Karen, when mm-hmm. there's money available, everybody probably has uh, ideas on yeah. how to spend the money. I mean, you've you just rattled off an, uh, an impressive list of activities. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the source of the money for a second, yeah. because some of the money is coming from what's called a cap and trade program. Yes. Could you explain that? Because there's many people here that don't have cap and trade in their own states. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm certainly not the expert on that, but basically at, at the very beginning of California's climate 
agenda, there was a decision made that instead of putting a hard, a hard you can or cannot do this, or to put a cost on carbon, that decision was made to go with a more market-based approach. This was in the early days of doing this. And so there were capped emissions, which becomes an incentive to do whatever you can to lower your greenhouse gas emissions. Or you could go to this marketplace. We run quarterly auctions to buy offset credits. That is the element that makes it somewhat controversial but I would argue that it has created a lot of innovation and a lot of opportunities, including in agriculture. We are not a capped entity. We are paying higher energy costs because energy generation is a capped entity. Oil refinery is a capped entity. Um, cement and aggregate production is a capped entity. So they're the ones that are capped and are going to this marketplace to buy offsets for where they haven't been able to voluntarily reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That goes into the Climate Change Investment Fund that then goes back out to invest in helping move all sectors into low carbon activities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And now with our natural working land strategy as part of that, we will be looking at what we can do in forestry, land management and agriculture to actually draw down carbon and sequester carbon, which will hopefully then create its own marketplace for credits and offsets in ag. I want to reset the room because there's a whole lot of people who have come into the room so far, and I really want to welcome them all. This is Roger Wasson. This is the Farm to Table Talk Clubhouse, and we're speaking today with Karen Ross, who is the Secretary of Food and Agriculture at California, and we're talking about climate smart agriculture. Uh, Karen, your old boss is back at uh, as Secretary of Agriculture because you work for Tom Vilsack, at, and now he's back and he's talking about this too. I'm wondering uh, if any of your programs will become redundant with what's going to be coming up at at the national, or do you anticipate uh, any synergies between uh, federal policy that might be available for carbon credits and sequestration and what might be going on in the states? That's a great question. And I want to note that all of our programs are based on science and research and standard practices that actually originated at USDA, especially at the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which houses a lot of the, you know, the Farm Bill EQIP program, which is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, the Conservation Stewardship Program, um, the Farmland Preservation Program. Um, and what they have developed were tools, Comet Planner and Comet Farmer, that help a farmer quantify their greenhouse gas emission reductions or the equivalent reductions. So we build our program on their work. There's not enough government dollars at the end of the day to, to get every acre under these practices with incentives. There's gonna be an important role for the market to play in this. There's an important role for us as uh, across our entire food supply chain to collaborate together, to, to, to make these kinds of things happen. Um, but incentive dollars are designed to get early actors um, into these programs to demonstrate to others what the, what the benefits are 
and a true understanding of what the costs are. So we better understand trade-offs. And then as I, I believe over time, the business case will be there for this is helping me reduce energy. This is helping me reduce synthetic fertilizer. This is helping me on, on improve water use um, and improve soil health that over time, there should be some productivity case. That's what we need to do. We need to have these early incentive dollars to help people understand the trade-offs and where the benefits are, and then they can make a business case for what they wanna pursue or not. And that's an important element of farming. We all farm in very different settings, very different climates and microclimates, different scale of farming, different cropping patterns. There's no one way of doing this. That's the most important thing we have to remember. Well, I want to open it to some of the people that are on stage, and then we're going to let the whole bunch of people come up on stage. Your old boss is back at uh, as Secretary of Agriculture because you work for Tom Vilsack, at, and now he's back, and he's talking about this too. I'm wondering uh, if any of your programs will become redundant with what's going to be coming up at at the national, or do you anticipate uh, any synergies between uh, federal policy that might be available for carbon credits and sequestration and what might be going on in the states? That's a great question. And I want to note that all of our programs are based on science and research and standard practices that actually originated at USDA, especially at the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which houses a lot of the, you know, the Farm Bill EQIP program, which is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, the Conservation Stewardship Program, um, the Farmland Preservation Program. Um, and what they have developed were tools, Comet Planner and Comet Farmer, that help a farmer quantify their greenhouse gas emission reductions or the equivalent reductions. So we build our program on their work. There's not enough government dollars at the end of the day to, to get every acre under these practices with incentives. There's going to be an important role for the market to play in this. There's an important role for us as uh, across our entire food supply chain to collaborate together, to, to, to make these kinds of things happen. Um, but incentive dollars are designed to get early actors um, into these programs to demonstrate to others what the, what the benefits are and a true understanding of what the costs are so we better understand trade-offs. And then as I, I believe over time, the business case will be there for, this is helping me reduce energy this is helping me reduce synthetic fertilizer. This is helping me on, on improve water use um, and improve soil health that over time, there should be some productivity case. That's what we need to do. We need to have these early incentive dollars to help people understand the trade-offs and where the benefits are, and then they can make a business case for what they wanna pursue or not. And that's an important element of farming. We all farm in very different settings, very different climates and microclimates, different scale of farming, different cropping patterns. There's no one way of doing this. That's the most important thing we have to remember. You work on things like uh, like methane, and I know that there are some cattle producers that are on in the room right now mm -hmm. from uh, around the, the world, literally. 
And in the methane, is it methane digesters that primarily, or is there any other the kind of the yeah. methane research to yeah. uh, to deal with the critics of of, of cattle grazing? So um, that's a, another multi prong approach because we have 300 cow dairies that are all outdoor grazing, and we have you know 10,000 cow dairies. Um, and a methane digester is not going to be economically feasible for every one of them. And also operating a methane digester is like having a mini utility. And so allowing partnerships with developers with the dairy farmer lets the dairy farmer take care of his cows or her cows and get the best quality milk for the best quality dairy products possible. And a developer is responsible for operating that methane digester. I'm very excited about methane digesters because they are essential to our goals on, on moving away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, whether it's renewable electricity generation, renewable low carbon fuel standards for transportation, or renewable natural gas for commercial uses and injecting into the pipeline for home heating and cooling. That's critically important, but that's not the only one we fund. That's where a big part of the funding is done because we can get the biggest, fastest methane reductions by converting those large dairies to methane digesters. We also fund alternative manure management practices um, going from wet scrape to dry scrape, being able to separate that nutrient-rich part of the solids in our lagoons as we transition from that to use for compost or other valuable um, nutrient-based products. And that's one of our challenges now. How do we move those nutrient-rich products from intensive dairy land to cropland where they're paying a boatload of money for synthetic fertilizer, where this could be a really great input for them? Um, but then we're also, the, the research, and that's exciting, and we've got new partnerships with Denmark and others, of really taking a look at enteric fermentation, and where, where are those solutions available that are economically feasible, do not hamper the care and the health of the cow, to be able to do feed additives that could also help us on the enteric fermentation side. We're not there yet, but there's a lot of exciting work happening there. Did you say you're working with Denmark on that? D Denmark is one of many collaborators. We have a number of MOUs with countries um, around the world. I've led a number of delegations for climate smart agriculture to uh, the Netherlands, Israel, Australia, South Africa, Chile. Um, and we have just entered into a new memorandum of understanding with Denmark because it's a very dairy intensive country. And a, lo a lot of the collaboration happens at the academia to academia. Um, on research fronts um, and just the practical aspects. And then government shares information about policy development. Wow. Well, uh, I see our friend Ben. Ben, I was I just read something this morning that was going on in Canada about some grazing research that was showing that there was a reduction in methane because of uh, certain certain grazing systems that we're being experimented with in Canada right now. And I wondered if you might introduce yourself and if you have a comment or uh, a question for, for Secretary Ross as well. Thank you, Roger. Um, my name is Ben Glasson. I am here on the island in British Columbia. And um, and so my context is very different than most because I'm such so small scale. Um, and in this small environment where we have many small acreages. Um, I suppose 
Uh, I focus on regenerative livestock management and grazing systems, and I'm not familiar with the research that you're speaking to there, Roger, but I would love to see it, absolutely. Uh, I think my question here today uh, revolves around yesterday, I was listening to the first season of, or first episode of season three on Flipping the Table. Um, one of Roger's good friends, Michael Dimmick, uh, has a podcast, um, and he was interviewing uh, Tom Philpott, uh, who has a book on California agriculture. And the inevitable, uh, and one of the big topics in this book is the inevitable flood that's going to happen in the Central Valley. Uh, and so my question is about uh, what California is doing uh, to on to create measures to decentralize food production, uh, whether that's pushing to smaller uh, smaller producers like myself, uh, creating opportunities like you know the big need for livestock is obviously smaller abattoirs, um, but also smaller uh, wrapping uh, or sorry like uh, wash pack stations for vegetable producers, and then also just decentralization and, and diversifying the food system. Um, to be able to help more small growers uh, across, you know, California in your context, helping them uh, create resources to, to decentralize the large-scale production that's going on that, that may have risks uh, through pandemics, through floods, through droughts, things like that. Karen? So, Ben, I think um, COVID really introduced us all in a new and more stark way because of the prolonged time we've been housed <laughs> and the highlight of the day is what's for dinner and going to the store is an exotic trip to be making. Um, I would argue, Ben, that um, we really need to look at building resiliency, which a lot of our work is. We have a number of plans that are available at our natural resources agency. We did our water port resilience portfolio release last year, which shows very clearly we must always be prepared for flood and drought and that there are many um, practices and programs we can put in place that actually build resiliency for flood and drought concurrently. And so we're really looking at everything with multiple benefits and getting out of this siloed approach of doing a lot of the work that has happened. On the issue of decentralizing production, I would argue with the global population growth that we have, um, that what we're looking at is where are the right amounts for adding some redundancy into the system? And clearly a big part of resiliency is making sure that every producer can thrive regardless of the scale of what they're growing and where they're growing it. Um, the governor and the, and the budget this year has proposed additional funding for us over a two year period, it would be $7 million that's specific to providing technical assistance to small scale growers and historically underserved growers. I have a new um, advisory committee for small and black indigenous people of color farmers that's giving us advice on all of our grant programs. We have been interacting with a number of our state legislators and this is not new for the last decade. There's been an interest of having more small scale um, custom harvest facilities and mobile facilities to help facilitate more consumer direct purchases of locally raised beef or pork or whatever it might be. Um, and at the national level, there have been several significant programs passed for COVID relief that really focuses on how do we add to the meat processing capacity to have more small scale um, processing facilities so that small scale producers have a better outlet 
for the kind of humane slaughter and then ultimately direct to consumer purchasing that they can. Um, we're in our budget discussions now and looking at other ways that we can provide additional support to urban farms as well as the small scale producers that just add that resiliency to our food system. They also add resiliency to local communities by making a stronger connection between local producers and those who are very interested in purchasing local. Um, and local has become a very strong value for our consumers. That's what we're seeing in California. They like the idea of feeling connected more directly to their food producers. Ben, did that cover it? It does. Thank you. It's great to hear that these uh, initiatives have the small producer in, in mind and how you know, it will be possible for the small producer to access those programs. Uh, I here in British Columbia have ran into troubles being able to apply for the same funding through what is here called our environmental farm plan because so many of the check boxes, um, and I hate a checkbox system. I think yeah. it should be results oriented, uh, not not meeting a certain standard. Um, yeah. Not checkbox, but but uh, uh, like you know, uh, being able to show your outcome based. Yeah. Um, so so it's a challenge here with this environmental farm plan because so many of the regulations are are built around larger operations than my own. So so. I am having to be excluded from the program because at my scale, it's just a different context from what's written into the regulations. So it's great to hear that you guys have it in mind um, for the small producer. Yeah. And, and Ben, I just, thanks for making that comment because the investment we're make in technical assistance has been critical to the success of our program. These are all voluntary practices, but there are many, whether it's lack of broadband or just, because we're accountable for these public dollars going through the application, making sure that every farmer, regardless of where they farm, the size of their farm, and if there are English language challenged, that we have invested in cooperative extension and community-based organizations and resource conservation districts specifically to make sure every farmer knows about the programs and has technical assistance to go through the application process and the progress reports that they're required to make. And I think that's going to become increasingly important um, with the availability of more programs at the federal level as well. Jack, do you have a question? And so I'm just curious, you know, California is so important in this conversation. How do we bring together those different parts of our food system so that we spend less time trying to undermine consumer confidence in what we perceive to be our competitor and we recognize that you know we need to increase by 50 to 100% protein and food by 2050 so the opportunity is there for everybody but if we uh, if consumers don't trust us to bring forward these innovations we might have them on the shelf but we will never be able to bring them to market so i'll leave it there and uh, look forward to your comments yeah so attack thank you thank you for that because I've been in the crosshairs of this for way too long um, and wish that I had the magic solutions. Um, but I will say I come from a place where I think we need it all um, because we cannot ignore the plight of fast growing populations around the globe and how to better nourish them as well as our own people who 
um, may have plenty of calories, but it's not always the best nutrition. And so I think if we focused on nourishing people and a healthy planet, we, we would be able to work better. But I would also say the magic for me has been breaking down the silos within the food system itself. Um, the farmer always feels like they're at the beginning of the system and somewhere down the road, the consumer acts and it comes back through a buyer who says, here, do this, and I'm not going to give you a penny more for this. And so I give a lot of credit to what I'm seeing in this country. I'm not saying it's the global answer, but I think it's an important part of it, is, is what U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance has done is they've got bankers, they've got fertilizer companies, they've got at the heart of it, farmers and ranchers, they have brand names, they have conservation organizations, they have some food justice people, not a lot, it's really more the environmental side of it. We have to stop thinking about the horizontal piece of the food system and have vertical conversations and solution sets that we all share and deliver. And I believe the work, I am a great fan from when I first met him 25 years ago, Jason Clay with World Wildlife Federation, his thinking on this, um, his work on this, the round tables, whether it's beef or palm oil or soy, fisheries, doing round tables where we come together and agree upon in a pre-competitive way, whether it's a brand name or someone else, these are the practices that we know can help us achieve the environmental and community development goals that we all share as part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. That's where we all need to focus and, and make it. This is about pre-competition. And we all agree these are the practices that we need to support to be able to achieve long-term economic and environmental vi viability to feed a fast-growing population and, and I go back to and to nourish them. We've taken nutrition out of the aspect and I think we have to put nutrition at the heart of it because if we're better if we're focused on food to nourish I think it will also back into the practices that make for a healthier planet. Secretary Karen Ross we really want to thank you for joining us in the clubhouse room. I hope you'll accept our invitation to come back again. And my invitation for you to join clubhouse too, because yeah. it'd be great to have you in more of these conversations. That's so terrific. thank you for joining us thank and you. again, come back again sometime. It was so nice of you to invite me. And I really appreciated the conversation and the questions, lots of thought provoking things here. Thank you. Good. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 